You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with startup founder Drew Starrett to talk about investing in commercial real estate properties through fractional ownership shares similar to stocks. Drew is the co-founder and CEO of Lex, a commercial real estate securities marketplace for real estate investors and real estate owners. Drew and I spoke about a type of passive real estate investing that has been gaining a lot of popularity lately, and that is investing through shares. It becomes easier for those looking to get into the real estate space to start investing even with limited capital. It's also a win-win for the property owners. With a lot of the audience being stock investors as well, given that's what we were founded on here at TIP, I think you're really going to like this episode, so let's get right into it. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Drew Starrett. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's start our conversation by talking a little bit about your background. How'd you get to where you are today? My interest in startup businesses, even from a young age, and then also my background in real estate private equity, where I was investing in commercial real estate and really developed a passion and a drive to want to do it for myself, but didn't have the ability to invest millions of dollars at any given point. And that's sort of what kicked off Lex where I wanted to make sure that we had a liquid and accessible market for everyone who wanted to participate. And that's what the origin story for the creation of the company. So why did you want to start a real estate startup? Were you a real estate investor yourself before you founded your company? So I invested briefly in the market, was looking to invest a part of my portfolio into real estate itself. I wasn't the biggest fan of public REITs, given the correlation and the lack of direct benefit of real estate ownership. It's more investing in a management company that owns a whole bunch of real estate instead of investing directly into individual properties. And so it was that looking to invest in commercial real estate, only having access to REITs, and that really drove the creation of Lex. That's sort of what was the catalyst. I'd say that a majority of the people listening to the show today are either new investors or they've done or they're at least individual investors, as in they invest in real estate directly themselves. So what exactly is Lex and how does it work? So Lex is the first commercial real estate securities market where we allow real estate owners to do equity recapitalizations in their stabilized commercial real estate assets. So that allows them to effectively take a portion of their equity in their building public. And then on the other side of the market, it allows investors both accredited and non-accredited, your wealth advisors, your RIAs, your family offices, your hedge funds to invest directly into liquid real estate assets. So how is that different than other crowdfunding platforms that are out there today for commercial real estate? Other crowdfunding platforms allow for accredited investors to make private placement investments into long-term locked-up capital investments. So you can go into a development project, you can do debt financing, but it does not allow for a liquid and open market. And in this case, this allows everyone to have full transparency and also access these securities through any brokerage account. 
So it's not like you have to go to an individual crowdfunding site, create an account, have all your money placed there. We allow every single wirehouse and brokerage firm to also access the platform. So in the future, Robinhood to your Morgan Stanleys will have access to these securities through whatever brokerage account they want, or they can create one with Lex. And can they be invested in through a retirement account or does it have to be an individual brokerage account? No, it can be through an IRA account. It can be through a 401k. It's all a risk of compliance, so it can't be self-directed. But it doesn't have to be a specific self-directed IRA account like the, I want to say, quote unquote, special ones that you need to usually invest in real estate? No, not at all. That's really, really interesting. You mentioned commercial real estate, and there tends to be various definitions of what a commercial property is. Some say that anything over four units is a commercial property because that's how banks will generally look at them. And then others consider properties leased to businesses a commercial property, like strip malls or maybe office space. How do you define commercial real estate? That's a really good question. I would say I would say my threshold, especially in multifamily, would be above four units. And it really depends more on the asset size, what the actual business plan and the operations are in the individual asset. My thoughts on what a commercial asset have been changed over time since I've also seen a variety of interesting commercial buildings and sort of operations that I never expected to. One of them actually was a it was a studio for filming in Los Angeles, where not only did you have a mixed use office building and parking lot, but then you also had four stages that were recording Netflix shows. So it's something I had never come across, especially in my underwriting and modeling. And it sort of taught me to expand my horizons on what you think of traditional commercial real estate. Yeah, I think it encompasses a lot of different things. Where you think of residential, that's pretty well defined. I think that fits into a bucket pretty well. But when it comes to commercial, it's pretty wide open. It can be almost anything and everything. So when we're talking about investing in real estate the way that we were just talking about using Lex, you're able to buy almost like shares in the building and trade them commission-free like you would a stock? Correct. And it's exactly like buying a share of Apple using your Robinhood account. Does it have a ticker symbol? It does. So it is not only has a ticker symbol, it's also registered with the DTCC and is QSIP. That's what allows you to pull it up on any brokerage account. And is that active now if people listening to the show want to be able to go look for it? Or is that something that's coming in the future? The app goes live in about two weeks, about to be right now. Yeah. So by the time this episode airs, it should be available for you guys to go check it out. Correct. So we should have our first three offerings available to the public. So is there an exchange like there is for the market? Where, like, How are investors... How is this happening? How is the exchange happening? So the trading venue is structured as an alternative trading system known as an ATS, which is one level below a national stock exchange. It allows every single wire and broker dealer to become a participating member. It's the same way that the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ does with every single high-frequency trading firm, with your Wells Fargo, with your JP Morgan Citibank. So it's the exact same structure, just with one, one level below a national stock exchange, still under the auspices of FINRA and the SEC. So what are some of the benefits of this type of investing in real estate compared to just traditional, whether it be investing directly in a syndication or if it's investing in REITs or even just other crowdfunding platforms? Well, I'll tackle... I mean, you just gave me a wide array. Compared to private placement, the minimum investment size is actually 
the purchase price of a single share, which is $100. So it makes it much more attainable to the everyday retail investor, including myself, since I don't have the ability to put a quarter million here, a quarter million there. And so it allows everyone to create a curated portfolio on a deal-by-deal basis while also having full control of what they're investing in. Since when you're investing in a REIT, you're really investing in a management company, you don't have any discretion on the allocation of their own portfolios and the exposure to the public markets. And also, you don't have the ability to readjust that portfolio. Let's say if you invested in a crowdfunding platform, and your capital was locked up for a three to five to seven years. So right now we're going through COVID-19. I know we're feeling a little bit more of an impact in the retail and even in the student housing space, which is something we would have never expected where everyone is going home from college. It's really hard when you don't have access to that capital and you sort of have to ride it out and you see the falling knife and you can't catch it. It just really empowers investors to A, know exactly what they're investing in, take control, and then also make their own choices. What are some of the fees associated with this? Is it is it like an ETF where you have uh, an expense ratio or what does that look like? So there is no expense ratio. We actually we make sure to be very careful since we're not fiduciaries, we're not asset managers, we're not investment advisors. So we'll let the likes of BlackRock come in to create those ETFs for retail investors and institutional investors in the future. And so there is no fee to create an account. And the only fees that are actually paid by the investors are just on a portion of it. Uh, just a few bips are taken out each quarter of the cash flowing distributions since these are all stabilized assets. No money isn't being paid out. For example, if it was this quarter in the public markets where you have tenants who aren't paying, there is no expense paid by the investors at all. So as the investor, do you get all the benefits of owning direct real estate, tax benefits, you know, everything that comes along with owning an actual piece of real estate? So what we did was create a new structure to allow for all of those benefits of direct real estate ownership pass through to the end investor. And so the tax advantages that you're talking about, depreciation, they do pass through. So you actually are side by side with the GP or the sponsor of the property and creating wealth the same way they are. And so when you go to file your taxes, you would just take your percent ownership of the depreciation and be able to write that off on your taxes, albeit probably very small if you only own a share or two, but it still is doable, it sounds like? Correct. And there are other tax advantages as well, given the structuring of the product. But yes, depreciation is a nice one that I look forward to claiming soon. So how does the pricing of the shares work on this type of model? Is it going to be very similar to the stock market? I mean, the stocks can increase in value or decrease in value for various different reasons. The company can do well, earnings can increase. It could be speculation and it could just go up because people expect the future to be better. I mean, there's a lot of different driving forces that can drive the stock market up. Is it the same? Do you think it's going to play out the same with these types of investments? So all of those same driving forces also affect the perceived value of the shares on the open market as well. And sort of like the whole idea of, I wish I could have bought in Brooklyn 15 years ago, since my $100,000 property is now a $20 million building. So the same way that you see appreciation and new tenants coming in, and new developments coming around and Whole Foods going in down the block, it's all perceived and created value where you have lease ups, you have tenant improvements, so more value is created and all of that will affect the underlying stock price to represent fair market value. It's Econ 101 supply and demand. So does every property or every deal have its own ticker? Yes. Each one has its own ticker. None of them are cross-collateralized. And so it's full independence with each property. Each property is its own filing. 
And it's not debt at all. It's straight equity. Pro rata equity. So no more two and 20 models as well. So you're actually able to decrease some of the fees that you would otherwise be paying and take out the promote structure in place. So you are side by side. If you have rocketing success, you get to participate in that as well. How can an investor vet this deal as in the asset itself, but also the management team? Are there annual reports? What are the required filings? Actually, that's a really great question. And uh, just to make you laugh and to make you feel a little bit better, we also do background checks on every single issuer uh, that comes through the platform as well. So there are no criminal backgrounds or anything that can be illicit or unbecoming. But on a go for it, the initial filing is filed with the SEC. And then there's also go forward reporting as well on a semi-annual basis and also audited financials by a third-party independent firm on gap accounting basis. So you actually have full transparency into the operations of the assets. So you actually have a lot more understanding of what you're investing in than even if you were investing in a private placement where you can sort of question some of the numbers and also sort of have to go knock on doors to get reports on a go-forward basis. But then even then public REITs where you understand what assets they're holding, but it's not like you have a very good understanding of the underlying numbers, what type of loan is on each asset. It's effectively going in and being able to do a real estate private equity deal, but from your own brokerage account where you can dive as deep and as wide as you want and get into the nitty gritty, or you can understand the basic fundamentals and then say, I fundamentally believe in industrial in Atlanta and multifamily, and then choose specific assets to what your investment thesis is and what your risk profile is. How does somebody who's the GP who has a deal and they want to get something like this listed, how do they go about that? So a few ways. Usually it comes through email, phone call, or we actually have a real estate owner's portal where they can go to our website and literally put in a property application where they fill in the high level information on the specific assets that they're thinking about doing a deal on. And we do our initial vetting. And then after if deal seems interesting and you think the fundamentals of what the real estate owner is asking for makes sense, the whole idea is you really want to make sure you're on the same page. And some people like to think that $100 million asset is really worth $150 million. So that makes it a little harder to do business. But when people are rational and have a really good understanding of what the fair market value is of specific assets, we're then able to do full due diligence and underwriting for the standards and actually pass the standards of commercial real estate debt underwriting for CMBS loans for life insurance companies, taking that forward to also do underwriting for a public offering into the public markets. Put all of that together and you have a Form 1A, which is the offering circular that's submitted to the SEC. Then once it's qualified by the SEC, you have really tradable shares and the real estate owner has cash in their pocket. So is the owner not able to charge essentially whatever they want and then go on a roadshow like you would for an IPO? Or is it... Yeah. How does that process work? There's three parts to it. One is traditional underwriting seeing and also traditional real estate investing, seeing what market comps are, seeing where the asset is appraised at, what the property conditional report comes back with, making sure that the phase one and phase two environmental are in shape and what the underlying financials are for the asset. So that's sort of part one. Part two is also sort of the look forward. It's like, where is this asset positioned? What is the credit rating of all the tenants in place? Are these long-term leases? Is the debt about to expire? All of which affect the underlying value of the asset. So you have that part. Then you also have the public markets. So we actually have the ability to do a roadshow where it's a period called testing the waters, where we can take indications of interest to make sure that the assets are priced correctly. And given that 
those line up with the appraisal and the market comps and what the real estate owner wants, it allows for actually true market pricing. That you actually have a lot more players coming to the table with a lot more information and transparency and data integrity. It should allow for better priced real estate. It can be favor or out of favor for the real estate owner. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned it's for stabilized assets. So can somebody not use this to acquire a property? So right now we do not do acquisition or development financing, and this is just for assets that they already own. So would it be fair to relate it to a cash out refinance? Yes, exactly. Put it in equity. You sort of get to refinance twice now without having to worry about over leveraging and what happens if you have events like COVID right now, or just anything that we can't predict, which happens more times than not in life. Yeah, you don't have that debt payment. I mean, it's equity that you're giving up. So you don't have a debt payment to... I mean, you're giving up ownership, obviously. That's what giving away equity is. But you don't have a debt payment to service every month or quarter or whatever your payment structure is. So can you get to a place where you can do acquisitions? Is that where you guys are going? Or is it always going to be a stabilized asset? We can. It may be a different product. And there may be a different investor criteria that's necessary. The other thing that comes into play is for closings, you usually have a hard and fast deadline where when you do a public offering, there are third parties who get involved where we don't have any control over them, including the SEC. And if you have a hard and fast closing date of 60 days and the SEC comes back and wants to ask a question or who knows, you have something crazy happen in the world, it makes it a little bit harder to have a hard and fast deadline for those definitive dates. And by having stabilized assets, that doesn't come into play. So how were you guys able to offer these types of securities to non-accredited investors? So we're able to offer these securities to non-accredited investors via Reg A Tier 2, which is known as the mini IPO. And it's been around since 2015, where it got revamped and expanded actually. And they're actually right now, the SEC is looking to potentially do another overhaul to actually allow for more money to be raised by each one of these offerings to expand some of the definitions and qualifications for the regulation. But because there is an initial offering circular that's filed and then all ongoing reporting, and it's pretty darn close to a traditional offering circular, that the public markets are used to. It's a uh, over-the-counter security that allows, that is accessible to everyone. So we talked about how a lot of the benefits of owning physical real estate is actually passed through to the investor. What does that legal structure look like? Are you owner of an LLC? Is it a, an LLP? What does that look like? Actually, it's an LLC that's qualified as a PTP. And a PTP is a publicly traded partnership. So it's a Delaware LLC that's a qualified PTP that allows for also the qualified income coming through the PTP to even capture a few more tax benefits associated with PTPs and also REITs where it's qualified income to allow for the tax benefits and the distributions that are being paid out as well. So what are you expecting an investor to earn for returns? I'm sure it's going to vary wildly between person to person, deal to deal. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different variables that can go into that. But just in general, what are you expecting for returns? So returns really do vary across the spectrum. 
there could be anywhere from like the mid single digits up to the mid teens, just given what the risk profile is. Since we deal with effectively every single asset class in the commercial real estate space across the entire United States geography. So we're not just New York centric or West Coast centric. We're really hitting the primary and secondary markets right now. Luckily, we didn't, the assets that we're working with going through the pipeline at this very time from a risk profile, less affected than most assets going through. One of them is an infrastructure project. One of them is a parking garage. Another one is a mixed use building here in New York with very uh, good credit rated tenants. So it really varies depending on who, what, where, when, why. Is most of the return driven by dividends or cash flow, you know, distributions to the owner, to you as an equity owner, or is it through appreciation? Do you expect the shares that are trading to double in price like you could see in a stock, or is it mostly coming from cash flow? It's more actually coming from cash flow right now, since you're actually purchasing effectively something that's very close to a high yield bond that can also appreciate and also has a tangible asset, hard asset behind it. But in this case, you have to remember pricing in Manhattan is still going to be less flexible than it will be if you were looking to purchase something in St. Louis, Missouri. Just two very different markets where the market cap rates in New York are usually lower than in St. Louis. So even if you had the two exact same assets, New York would price probably be priced slightly lower just because you have less volatility and perceived market value on the appreciation and depreciation scale. So is the cash flow distribution amounts up to the GPs? Because I know with a REIT, I believe they're required 90% to distribute of their profits or, or somewhere along those lines. How does that work out with the GPs? Is it up to their discretion? Two parts to that. One is, so the REITs can retain earnings and it's for the distributions that are being paid out. 90% have to be coming through, but they can also spend it on kind of improvement and everything to actually operate the REIT. What we do and how we structured it is if the real estate owner is going to take a distribution, it has to be paid out pro rata. So it still has to be distributed. However, if the GP is looking to retain some of the capital to do tenant improvements and like TILC, or just to increase how much money is in the CapEx account, just in case there is a large capital expenditure that's unexpected. They do have the discretion to retain a part of the distributions for that. But if a distribution is going to be paid out, it has to be, can't just go to them and not the partners of the public float. It has to be side by side. So I guess one of my big lingering questions is, why has nobody done this already? It's really hard. It's really complicated to structure in the beginning. It's not complicated from a fundamentals perspective where you're purchasing security and taking the building public. But there are a lot of systems that have to come into place. And then also regulation has made it easier. Technology has made it a lot easier. And creating a brand new securities market is more difficult than one might think. If I had the ability to go back to myself when I was starting this, I probably would have kicked myself once and said, it's going to be harder than you think. Get ready for a ride. And after that, I would have let my earlier self have more fun. But it's a complicated space. You are dealing with a whole bunch of entities. And at the same time, you're also dealing with commercial real estate owners and financial institutions, two of the oldest and slowest moving beasts in the world. So that's also one of the reasons why this hasn't happened is I would say actually commercial real estate owners are heads and shoulders more difficult than financial institutions. I mean, that's saying something. So I think all of that coming together has made it where people have taken the path of least resistance. And they have fundamentally good business models. You have private equity firms, you have crowdfunding platforms, you have asset managers, fiduciaries, 
in both public and private REITs and LP investing, both in the debt and equity space, it's just a lot harder to come and create a brand new securities market around it. So they took down some of the barriers, but we just decided to push it even further. Why is this type of real estate investing the future over, say, traditional active real estate investing? Most institutional deals are owned only by a handful of firms. And then you sort of have another tier below that where they own probably the net like 25%. This is really the future in our opinion because it provides long-term indefinite capital to institutional real estate owners as well, where you have to remember the problem with a lot of the private equity funds right now is they have to recycle their capital and they're always having to redeploy and sell off the assets. But that's really unfortunate if you have to do that in a down market or if you need to reposition the asset and you think there's a lot more long-term growth to come, even though your projected horizon was only on the performance was seven to 10 years. And you really see that there's 25 years of long-term value to be created. You can't hold on to the asset because you have to recycle the capital, make distributions back to your investors, and then go into your next deal. So this now allows them to return the capital. Actually, in many cases, they can increase their returns to created value in the first few years. Now you're actually paying it back years before you otherwise would have been also retaining the asset in a go-forward basis, just in a stabilized core asset functionality instead of a value-add acquisition or development. So there, it really is adding another tool to their tool belt. And because it allows them to create more value for their investors and themselves, we see this working for everyone across the spectrum, including both public and private REITs. So how does it work if the GP wants to sell or if the GP wants out of the deal? So maybe the GP doesn't necessarily want to sell the asset, but they just want to be out of the deal. They don't want to be involved in that asset anymore. How do they get out of it? And then as one part, and then how do they sell the asset? Do they have to get the approval of of the majority of the shareholders or how does that work? So if the GP wants to exit the asset, they have two ways to do it. One is to bring in a new managing member who also has an equity stake in the asset itself. So we've made sure that there's alignment with the GP and LP. So one is by bringing in a new managing member who also owns equity in the asset or purchases equity. And then the other one is by selling it to an independent third party. The real estate owner does not have to go to the LP investor base as long as the sale is to an independent third party. So you can't sell it to Cousin Jimmy. It's an arm's length. You use a national brokerage firm, market it for 60 days, and no fraud, misconduct, no self-dealing comes to play. They have the ability to do what's best for themselves and the investors. The whole idea is to align both the real estate owner and the investor. So it's not like they're butting heads together. They're actually working side by side. That's been the whole idea is create value for the real estate owner, create value for the investor, just align all the interests. So it's in everyone's best interest to do the right thing and not do anything other than that. So they have the ability to do what's best and create the value where they can. And then if they see that the value has been created and they can find the best opportunity to sell, they're going to sell. And then the investors get to benefit in that uptick as well. So if they decide to sell the asset, obviously the shares or ticker symbol, if you will, will just go away? Correct. It'll be closed out. Each investor will receive their pro rata distribution of the equity that they own in the asset. So it's the same thing as when Monsanto was purchased by Bayer or any public company is purchased by another company, Amazon purchasing Whole Foods. Same situation. Yeah, very similar to that. They're probably these assets are probably just going to be more temporary as you probably won't see them on the market trading as public securities for as long, I'm assuming, as most public companies. Depending on who the sponsor is, yes. There are some 
sponsors who want to own indefinitely. There's some sponsors who want to own for eight years and then create the asset. But also that's in the business plan and the prospectus when the offering's coming out to the market. So investors understand what the mentality is of the sponsor themselves. And of course, it's subject to change, but at least you have an idea and you'll be updated in the future if that ever does change. Are there quarterly or semi-annually conference calls to connect with the GP? Yes. Yes, there are. And so does that work very similar to how a traditional conference call would work or earnings report would work? Yes. And it's up to the discretion of the real estate owner. So if the real estate owner doesn't want to do it, they don't have to. But for a lot of the real estate owners, they actually do. They find it interesting to see sort of what the public market thinks. And it's a feel-good experience since you have a lot of people who actually care about what you're doing to some respects. And if you want to stay behind the scenes, you can. However, if you want to participate, you have every access and mean to. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's almost like being the CEO of a publicly traded company without having to go through all of that stuff that comes along with that part of it and just actually be involved in real estate. It is. And you don't have to worry about activist investors or anything like that. So the main selling point to real estate owners, other than achieving fair market value for selling out the LP position, it is a limited partnership position. This isn't, you can't have like minority stakeholder activists knocking at your door. That's not how this works. It was really the creation of something that works for real estate owners and something that works for investors. Yeah, that's actually a good point. So if somebody, and this is mostly theoretical, it probably won't happen, but if somebody did come up and buy all of the LP shares that were outstanding, they still don't have enough ownership to do anything with that, right? The GP will have decision rights? Correct. So you're correct in the first place. And we also restrict the total amount that any individual can purchase. Because you also have to remember, these are stabilized assets. And for the most part, they already have debt on them. So you have loan covenants and transfer restrictions, where after you've reached, let's say it's a 10% threshold, you have to be named on the loan documentation. So we make sure that those thresholds are set preemptively to reflect what is already in the corporate structuring and loan doc. So the owner of the asset doesn't have to own the asset free and clear. They can have some debt still on it and still do this public offering? Oh, absolutely. No, this was created and structured to be used, especially with debt. For CMBS, it's up to 49% of equity can be sold without triggering the loan transfer restrictions. This was very much a product to, as you sort of said before, it's like you get to refinance twice. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm I'm curious how the process was for you guys to get banks to understand what you guys are doing, but also be okay with it. I've worked at a bank for three years before and I just I've worked with them as a real estate investor and I know how and they're very strict on their rules and their lending guidelines and things of that nature. So I'm I'm kind of surprised to hear that they would allow this type of structure. We were surprised as well, to be completely frank. Because the banks we went it's the master servicers and the special servicers, and they're the ones who at the end of the day, once the bank sells it off, there it's whose hands the loans sit. And they were actually big supporters of the product because one of the things we hadn't taken into account is once a loan closes, other than a special servicer or any type of servicer, knowing that the cash flows are coming in and like payment is being made on the loan, the actual fundamentals of the property on a sort of specific basis are usually 12 to 18 months stale. So now they actually have real-time information and data on each of their individual holdings, their bond holdings. And so they can actually tell what the health of their portfolio is in real time compared to being 12 months late 
for the game. And so they were like, we'd rather have this for all of our assets since then we can know what paper we're actually holding. Is this uh, A plus or is this now a C? Yeah, that's really interesting. And like you said, I mean, you guys are setting restrictions as to how much the LPs can own the investors. I mean, in theory, it's not any different than if you went out and raised the money private or if you went and used the public markets. I mean, you're still fitting into those same guidelines. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. Really interesting. This whole, this whole concept, the whole business model, the whole service or product that you guys are offering is, is really interesting. I'm, I'm excited to dive into it a little bit more in a couple of weeks when it comes out and, and learn more about it myself. I think it's an interesting mix or intersection of stock investing and, and real estate in a sense. you know. And so I, I find it very interesting and, and I'm looking forward to diving into it. For those that are interested in learning more about you, connecting with you, and also what you guys are doing with Lex, where's the best place for them to go? So the best place to go is to go to www.lex-markets.com. And if they want to reach me directly, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at drew at lex-markets.com and try and have a clean inbox by the end of every single day. I'll be sure to put a link to those two resources in the show notes so everyone listening today can go take advantage of those. I'll also put some resources that are similar or related to the things that we talked about in today's show so you guys can go read up on those topics more if you're interested in, in diving a little deeper. Drew, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I did as well, Robert. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.